Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Hello, my name is Juan Valdez. I live at the Patio's Apartments. On St. Charles? Yes. I don't quite know what's going on, but I smell smoke. It may be coming from my air ducts. It's 4 a.m., so I don't think anybody could be cooking. Sir, is there a fire in your building? I really think someone should come take a look. It's getting stronger. coming from there. Apartment J. Smoky as hell in here. Looks like it's coming from the bedroom. Hey, where are you going? <coughs> it's... I can't see too good, but it's pretty sure the bed's on fire. Get out of there. I'll call in the firemen. Out of the way. Move. Move. All clear. It's the craziest thing. Only the mattress was on fire. Is anyone in there? You're gonna have to see it for yourself. <coughs> okay. I can finally see in here. Jeez, nice place. Look at the walls. I know. Hardly any smoke damage. No. Look closer. Is that... blood? What kind of fire does that? I don't think a fire is the only thing we're dealing with here. Look, behind the bed. Is that a body? Oh lord, look at this gal. You can see inside of her. That's ridiculous. How? Oh my god. Where's her arm? At 4 a.m. on July 21st, 1964, a man who identified himself as Juan Valdez called the New Orleans Police Department to report a fire at the patio's apartments. Firefighters and policemen would discover a strange crime scene, a burning mattress with a woman's body underneath and blood spatter on the walls. It was a violent crime scene, but there were no signs of forced entry at the apartment or anything stolen from it. The woman's right arm and torso were burned completely away, and she had multiple lacerations on her extremities and genitals. And a stab wound straight through her heart. Dr. Carolyn Talley would later identify her body. The victim, Mary Sherman, was not only a fellow doctor, but also a world-renowned orthopedic surgeon and a respected researcher on the front lines of the fight to cure cancer. She was also Carolyn Talley's best friend. But if Mary's life work was dedicated to solving the mysteries of the body, it's tragically ironic that her murder remains a mystery to this very day, with a deep web of questions and conspiracies surrounding it. So let's take a closer look at the life and death of Dr. Mary Sherman. 
This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our first episode on the murder of Dr. Mary Sherman. If you like the show, we'd immensely appreciate if you could leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Associate Professor at Tulane Medical School. Senior Visiting Orthopedic Surgeon at the New Orleans Charity Hospital. Member of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons and the American College of Surgeons. All of these are impressive achievements on their own, but Mary Sherman achieved them all. In addition to being an internationally published researcher and a member of the Sigma Chi and Alpha Omega Alpha Medical Honor Societies. Mary was an anomaly in the 20th century's male-dominated medical landscape, and her rise to superstardom remains an inspiration. Especially since nothing in Mary's upbringing indicated that she'd take on such a unique and impactful career. If anything, this practical woman of science was raised to follow a different path, one in the arts. Dr. Sherman was born Mary Stoltz on April 21, 1913 in Evanston, Illinois, one of three girls in a family of artists. Her mother, Edith Monica Graham, was a talented vocalist who showed off her lilting soprano at events around Chicago. She was also a popular instructor at Chicago's Mary Wood Chase School of Musical Arts. Mary's father, Walter Allen Stoltz, was a professor at the prestigious Northwestern University School of Music. He was also a singer himself, a baritone, undoubtedly a nice counterpoint to his wife's soprano. Walter was a co-founder of the Pi Kappa Lambda Honor Society, a national organization promoting music education at institutions of higher learning. Mary, of course, eventually became a Pi Kappa Lambda herself. Which makes sense, given that she spent her childhood training for an opera career under her father's eye. Very good, Mary. I have no doubt you'll impress all your Parisian classmates with that lilting tone. I won't be singing my way through class, Father. Mary? Something wrong? No... It's just, what if this isn't what I want to do with my life? We Stoltzes are singers. What else would you be? Unless, perhaps, a pianist? Oh, you've got graceful and precise hands. I see that. Maybe there's a teacher in Paris What if I want to be, I don't know, a scientist or a doctor? (laughs) Oh, Mary. (laughs) What? Female doctors exist. Few and far between. I'm not saying it's impossible. And you're certainly bright, but that's a hard path, my dear. Best to stick to the family business. In fact, music is the medicine of the soul. So I could be a singing doctor, belt out my diagnosis in A minor? (laughs) Oh, maybe you will be. Until then, back to our scales. La 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 la. If Mary's medical aspirations didn't come naturally, her family's worldly and academic pedigree no doubt influenced her. At 16, Mary left Illinois for Paris, where she studied at l'Institut de Madame Colnot. It's safe to assume it was the kind of cosmopolitan French language training that a privileged artistic young woman would be lucky to receive. After all, in the 1920s, Paris was the place to be for prestigious American artists like F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway. 
Mary returned to the States at age 18 and enrolled at Northwestern University, where her father taught. She received a Bachelor of Arts in 1934, then a Master of Arts degree from the University of Chicago. Using her language and travel experience, Mary went on to be an instructor at the University of Illinois French Institute in Paris until 1936. But somewhere along the way, Mary's focus turned to the medical field. It's not entirely clear what inspired her to pursue medicine, especially given her education and artistic background. But if there's anything we know about Mary, it's that she enjoyed a challenge, and becoming a female doctor in the 1930s was perhaps the greatest one she could face. Oh, I should add that around the time she got her M.A. and set her sights on medical school, Mary married a dermatologist named Thomas Sherman. Oh, that's a big side note. You're right, but very little is known about Thomas Sherman. Perhaps the true love of Mary's life was actually medicine. While still married to Thomas, she returned to the University of Chicago and earned a medical degree in 1941, which Thomas helped pay for. Then she completed an internship at the Bob's Roberts Hospital, the University of Chicago's pediatric treatment center at the time. It was an exciting time for science, and the University of Chicago was at the center of the action. Founded by a Rockefeller Foundation grant, the university became a center for biochemical research and by the 1940s, nuclear research as well. In 1942, Nobel laureate and acclaimed scientist Enrico Fermi and his team conducted the first controlled, self-sustaining nuclear chain reaction at the University of Chicago, ushering in the modern nuclear age. (gasps) Dr. Fermi! Uh, Dr. Fermi, you've done it! Well then, open up a bottle of Chianti and let's celebrate! Chianti? Which they allegedly drank out of paper cups. Anyway, in Mary's corner on the campus, things were less flashy. Her initial research wasn't even related to human medicine, but rather botanical viruses that lived in soil. Mary also continued to surround herself with the best and the brightest. She became good friends with one of the few fellow female graduate school classmates, Sarah Stewart. Sarah was pursuing a PhD in microbiology and with Dr. Bernice Eddy, yet another unsung hero in modern American medicine. Sarah later would become known for her discoveries related to SV40, a cancer-causing virus that millions were exposed to thanks to a polio vaccine. But if Mary's work was going great, her home life wasn't. Sometime during or right after the end of World War II in 1945, Mary and Thomas divorced. He later committed suicide. Not much is known about his suicide, and there are conflicting reports about whether he jumped out a window or hanged himself. Either way, perhaps to cope with this tragedy, Mary doubled down on her work. Her focus eventually shifted to bone and soft tissue cancers, and this was the field where Mary really excelled. In 1947, she became an associate professor of orthopedic surgery at the University of Chicago and practiced at the university's Billings Hospital in addition to her work at Bob's Roberts. A position which allowed Mary to indulge in one of her other loves, travel. In 1950, Mary took a three-month Alaskan excursion on the USMS North Star II. Now, this was no cruise ship. It had an important mission. The freighter journeyed 11,000 miles along the coast delivering supplies to remote villages and providing x-rays and medical assistance from the staff of Alaska's Mount Edgecombe Hospital. 
Mount Edgecombe had ties with Bob Roberts Hospital in Chicago, as more complex orthopedic cases were often sent to Bob's Roberts. Mary was sent up to observe the orthopedic issues of Alaskan villagers herself. An extreme house call, if you will. Lowell Schuler, the wife of Mount Edgecombe's administrator, was on the ship. Her memoir, Alaska, in the wake of the North Star, provides a glimpse of Mary's Alaskan adventure. As part of the small group of civilians aboard the ship, Mary and Lowell became fast friends who helped each other endure the rough journey. Mary, I just can't stand the noise. The creaking back and forth and back and forth all night. Reminds me of this squirrel that used to live above my ceiling when I was a girl. Drove me insane. You need to relax. The creaks are actually rather soothing to me. They remind me of the sounds a horse's saddle makes when you're riding it. Do you fall asleep on horseback too? (laughs) Oh, stop. You've got to find comfort where you can. When she wasn't trekking through remote Alaskan villages, Mary was continuing her meteoric rise through the medical ranks in Chicago. Her career is impressive in any decade, but consider this fact. In the 1940s, only 5.5% of the incoming medical students were female, and women only made up 6% of the physician's workforce. Mary was one of only three female orthopedists in the United States, and it was this status that caught the attention of a powerful, enigmatic figure in the medical community, Dr. Alton Ochsner. Alton was the son of German immigrants who had a foothold in the elite ranks of the medical world. His uncle, A.J. Oxner, founded the American College of Surgeons. And later in his career, Alton was appointed head of surgery at Tulane Medical School in New Orleans. With a little help from Uncle A.J., of course. But while nepotism played a part in his rise, there is no doubt that Alton Oxner deserves his legacy. He was one of the first doctors to insist on a link between lung cancer and cigarette smoke. It may seem obvious now, but in the 1930s, this theory was laughed off. There weren't enough lung cancer cases yet to establish a link. As early as 1939, Oxner and his fellow researchers were clear. In our opinion, the increase in smoke with the universal custom of inhaling is probably a responsible factor. As the inhaled smoke constantly repeated over a long period of time, undoubtedly is a source of chronic irritation to the bronchial mucosa. When the American Medical Association posited that his theories were extreme, Oxner was ruthless in his retorts. Only two kinds of physicians do not accept the evidence of a causal relationship between cigarette smoking and cancer. Employees of the tobacco industry and some addicted to cigarette smoking. It took years for Oxner's theories to be accepted as fact, but that didn't stop him. He established the Oxner Clinic in 1942 in New Orleans. It became known as the Mayo Clinic of the South. Probably because Oxner modeled it on his good friend William Mayo's world-famous clinic. It was there that Oxner began his war on smoking. He also researched new methods of beating other cancers. If Mary was a rising star in the cancer research community, then Alton Oxner was the sun itself. And in 1952, Oxner made Mary an offer she couldn't refuse. Hello? Mary Sherman? Or, pardon, Dr. Sherman. This is Alton Oxner. Call me whatever you want, Dr. Oxner. I'm just thrilled you're calling it all. I've had my eye on you for some time. How many journals have you been written up in? Ten? I see your name everywhere. It's maddening. I'll tell the journals to write it in smaller type. (laughs) 
And I'm sure you've been written up more, considering there's a clinic named after you and not me. How'd you like that to change? See, I don't care if you call me Dr. Oxner or Alton. I just want you to call me partner. Partner? Mary, I want you to run my bone cancer laboratory at the Oxner Clinic. You're too smart to freeze in those horrible Chicago winters. I... this is... yes. Yes, of course. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Dr. Sherman, you are going to love New Orleans. <laughs> yes! Mary Sherman knew that moving to New Orleans would change her career, but she couldn't have known it would also lead to her murder. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. On Unsolved Murders, we explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases. But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal, what do you picture? You picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form, from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. New Orleans, the Big Easy. A melting pot of immigrant cultures, alive with jazz music, rife with tales of intrigue from the French Quarter, and a truly unique American city. But like many American cities in the South in the 1950s, it was steeped in the old-fashioned traditions that led to segregation and discrimination. New Orleans has always had a high crime rate. In 1994, it was named the murder capital of America. And in 1952, the year Mary Sherman moved there, there were 66 murders. Mary Sherman would eventually become one of the 82 murders of 1964. But in 1952, she moved there to embark on her most prestigious career move yet. Mary arrived in New Orleans and quickly found her place at respected institutions where a research community thrived. In addition to offering her a job at the Oxner Clinic, Oxner also arranged for Mary to begin work as an associate professor at Tulane University School of Medicine. He was the big man on both medical campuses and was known as a rather unique character. Biographies describe his sparkling eyes and winning smile, but Oxner was also known for his tough teaching style. His signature move was the bullpen. Oxner would gather medical students in an amphitheater and scream questions at them. Well, some students fainted under the pressure, and it's clear why. He tended to berate them if their answers weren't to his liking. Luckily, Mary Sherman was brighter than his students. Alton, you certainly don't pull punches with these students. Medicine is stressful. Why shouldn't medical school be? <laughs> You're right. <laughs> but I'm sure glad I already have my degree. It's safe to say that Oxner was a brilliant man who maybe had a few anger issues, and he was opinionated too. Oxner was heavily involved in Republican politics and had deeply conservative views. He absolutely hated communists. 
Now, as the Cold War warmed up in the 1940s and 50s and communist panic simmered in American society, it's not surprising that Oxner would feel that way. But Oxner used his political and personal connections to solidify his anti-communist agenda. He treated several Latin American dictators who identified as anti-communist, like Juan Perón, president of Argentina. In 1955, Oxner flew to Buenos Aires to treat Perón's leg ailment. Generals are no good. They order too much. Lawyers are no good. They argue too much. Engineers can't make a decision without consulting a slide rule. But I like surgeons because they are men of action. Well, once you know what needs to be done, there is no point waiting. Precisely, Dr. Oxner. Let's drink to that. Sounds like the only reasonable course of action. <laughs> <laughs> Mary was fluent in Spanish and accompanied Oxner on dozens of trips like this one to Latin America. Sherman and Oxner were both brilliant and cultured, but it's unlikely that Mary shared Alton's love for the spotlight, even if her murder made her more of a celebrity than she'd ever have wanted to be. In life, Oxner flitted around the globe, treating controversial dictators and movie stars like Gary Cooper. While Mary was known to feel most at home, alone in a research lab. Still, they shared a certain tenacity and toughness that gave them a bit of a reputation in the lab. Gordon McFarland, a former resident at the Oxner Clinic, referred to Mary as, quote, a pain in the neck and a ball buster if she found it necessary. But how much of that can be attributed to 1950s sexism and the fact that McFarland probably wasn't used to taking orders from women? Touche. Probably true. But, pain in the neck or not, Mary continued to prosper career-wise. She was elected to the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, an honor that takes surgeons years to achieve. And some never even achieve it. (laughs) But Mary took it even one step further, eventually taking over as chairwoman of the AAOS Pathology Committee. Mary was one of six doctors tasked with evaluating the state of bone cancer treatment. Their goal was to revise their medical rules and ethics to keep up with the rapidly evolving treatment methods. So Mary literally wrote and rewrote the rule book on bone cancer. We've established she was a superstar. But what was Mary's personal life like? It's clear she spent most of her time in her lab, but surely some of New Orleans' wild spirit must have seeped into her after-hours activities. So let's figure out who the woman behind the microscope was. Mary Sherman came to New Orleans as a driven, single 39-year-old. She was a broad-shouldered, imposing, and attractive woman who kept her long, dark hair braided tightly around her head. She spoke multiple languages and, through her work, traveled and made good money, enough for her to move into the patio's apartments, a safe building on one of the nicest streets in New Orleans, St. Charles Avenue. While most of her life was dedicated to scientific pursuits, she did find the time to make a few friends in the New Orleans art scene. Friends that she kept separate from her work colleagues. Mary, care to stop by for a drink and some bridge tonight? We're off early. Would love to, but I'm booked tonight. Aw, little French Quarter intrigue with your artist pals? Don't let them get you drunk enough to write another check. This isn't the Renaissance, Mary. If only. I have the money and the passion to be a patroness of the arts, and they remind me a little of the folks I grew up around. (laughs) Well, maybe you could actually invite me along. I'm just dying to meet them. Maybe next time. I don't think you'd like them much. 
Dr. Sherman, you are a mystery. <laughs> I'll see you tomorrow. Hopefully, one of the residents will have invented a hangover cure. The state of orthopedics depends on it. In the years before she died, Mary became close to novelist Max White. All I'm saying is, the reviews for Blake's play were needlessly harsh. I'm aware. You've been ranting about it for ten minutes. Let's talk about something else. Not your work, either. How's your love life? Uh, that's a boring subject. About Blake's play, though, it's just frustrating when a critic doesn't understand the playwright's intention. Especially frustrating when you invested $2,000 in the playwright, I'd wager. Max, this isn't about money. <laughs> Said the rich lady. Successful is what I am. Rich is just a side effect. And it's paying for your drinks, by the way. But I'd be terribly boring without them. And you'd be terribly boring without me. Forgive the dramatic irony, but... Can I borrow some money? We should note that the $2,000 Mary lent to her other friend, playwright Charles Blake, was two grand in 1950s money. Today, that would be about $15,000. Talk about a love of the arts. <laughs> or maybe as a doctor, she just had a soft spot for hard luck cases. Well, Max White had a soft spot for Mary, too. Though they were only friendly for a short time, police questioned Max after Mary's murder. He revealed he had broken off his friendship with Mary. <clears throat> I wrote a letter last October, maybe November. She was due to return from another European sojourn, and I, I wanted her to know that it hurt to have her in my life. I didn't want to see her anymore. Did you two fight? No. We'd only known each other for a year, but she was always worked up about her job, or theater, or literature. Never spoke of anything else. So she was private? Too private. I realized that, well, every time she left, I'd get sadder and sadder. Something was bothering her, destroying her. It was like watching someone get torn up from the inside. I was very fond of her, so it was difficult for me. I felt very depressed. Are you saying you had feelings for her she didn't reciprocate? Or couldn't. Which means what exactly? Mary Sherman lived in very grand fashion. In a very French Quarter life, shall we say. What's that supposed to mean? <laughs> I sense that subtext isn't your forte. What I mean is, my first opinion of Mary Sherman was that she was a lesbian. And this could have destroyed her? Mr. White, are you implying that this was a factor in her murder? The rumor that Mary was gay spread through the French Quarter during her murder investigation. It's not implausible, but what's far-fetched about it is the lack of concrete evidence. Even Max White's testimony was shaky at best. Mr. White, are you aware of any of Dr. Sherman's past or current lovers? No. Then what is your reasoning behind this statement? What's your proof? I once knew a lesbian in Venice, and Mary reminded me of her. I see. Thank you, Mr. White. The police report on Max's interrogation also indicates that Max once saw Mary get into a car with a woman after a play he attended with Mary. He suspected that it was Carolyn Talley, but he couldn't be sure because he'd never met her. Well, if he never met Carolyn and he couldn't identify her, I'm not sure that means anything. 
Furthermore, even if it was Carolyn, maybe it was just Mary getting picked up by a good friend. It seems like Max's proof of Mary's sexuality was based on his skepticism at Mary and Carolyn's friendship. And a memorable Italian lesbian? Sad to say, but maybe the rumor started because it was the 1950s and 60s. Mary was a husbandless, childless, middle-aged woman with a murky romantic past and a reputation as a ballbuster in a male-dominated field. And a bloody crime of secret lesbian passion in steamy New Orleans sells a lot of papers. But then again, Mary was a public figure with a very private side in a much more ignorant era. So who's to say what the truth really was? I don't think we'll ever know. But for what it's worth, Don Lee Keith, then a reporter at the New Orleans Times-Picayune newspaper, investigated this angle heavily. He asked around at gay and lesbian bars all across New Orleans and got a pretty definitive answer. If that woman was a lesbian, I would have known or found out. Still, it seems like even those closest to Mary didn't get a full glimpse into her private life. A sad fact when you consider that her killer burned a third of Mary's body off so police could literally see right inside of her. Mary was good at compartmentalizing the conflicting aspects of her life. Driven and tough at work, an arts enthusiast with quirky friends in her free time, and at home... Well, home is perhaps the most private place you can be, so we should delve deeper into Mary's life at the patio's apartments. The patios were at 3101 St. Charles Avenue, a historic street known for its gorgeous early 20th century mansions. The building still stands today, though it's no longer known as the patios. It was a nice part of town befitting Mary's standards and salary, but the patios were also described as a refuge for uptown bohemians. Classy, but a little edgy, much like Mary herself. Mary's apartment was a one-bedroom with a patio and a study, with bars on the doors and a burglar alarm that could be manually deactivated. Now, let's keep in mind that Mary's apartment showed no sign of forced entry on the night of her murder, and the alarm was deactivated. While we won't go into suspects and motives immediately, the people in her apartment complex would be the most likely to be able to enter her home, either by invitation or by knowledge of her lock system. Mary had a housekeeper, Elmer Peterson, who knew the alarm code. There was also a maintenance man, Alvin Alcorn, who worked for the building for the 12 years that Mary lived there. Though Mary mostly kept to herself and was often away on work trips across the globe, she didn't go unnoticed by her neighbors. Especially Juan Valdez, the same man who would call the police claiming he smelled smoke on that fateful July night in 1964. Good morning, Dr. Sherman. My, that's a lovely orchid. Phalaenopsis, yes? Very good. You've learned quickly. I think perhaps you've missed your calling as a botanist, Juan. That's kind of you, Mary. Short, plump, meticulous, and balding. Juan was a Cuban-American customs broker with a near-perfect American accent, who claimed the majority of his work was in coffee importing. Uh, let's note here that he's not the Juan behind the Juan Valdez coffee brand. This one also specialized in importing rare Latin American plants. Prize-winning orchids of every color decorated his apartment, and he also raised macaws. Their neighbor, 21-year-old Victoria Hawes, was a young mother raising her children while her husband, Owen Hawes, worked at NASA. She often saw Juan and Mary speaking Spanish and found it peculiar that a respected doctor would associate with a curious character like Juan. But they did have a cordial relationship. For a little while, at least but apparently not at the end. 
Elmener, while I'm gone, could you do me a favor? Is everything all right, Miss Mary? It's all fine. It, it's just... Could you make sure that Juan Valdez stays away from my apartment? Oh, um, of course. But aren't you friends, Miss Mary? Just keep him away, please. Now, why would Mary change her mind about Juan Valdez? It's possible we're reading too much into this and that this was the result of a neighborly spat. Apparently, Mary and Juan had fought over garbage. What kind of garbage? Uh, It's unclear, but apparently, according to housekeeper Elmer Peterson, the spat escalated when Juan threw a bunch of his flowers onto Mary's patio in anger. From then on, Elmer said that Mary considered Juan to be an obnoxious pest and she didn't want him around. Did Mary fear an even more extreme form of retaliation? I doubt it. I think she was just sick of awkward run-ins with her neighbor which I'm pretty sure has happened to all of us. It's just that not all of us are lucky enough to have a housekeeper we trust to keep our neighbors away. Still, Mary wasn't the only person to have had peculiar encounters with Juan Valdez. Other neighbors at the patios had their own issues with Juan, and they usually had to do with his bathroom habits. Wake up! It's happening again! Um, what? I have to get up early. Let me get some sleep. I will as soon as that damn toilet lets me get some sleep too. Huh? Someone's been flushing their toilet all night. I think it's Juan Valdez. I've counted ten times. (laughs) Wait, you counted? It's not like I enjoyed it. He does this a lot though. Sometimes he invites strangers over and it sounds like they're all chatting in his bathroom. Sounds a little ridiculous. Well, he is a bit odd. You know... Valdez goes out walking at all hours of the night, right? So he's a night owl with a broken toilet. None of our business. Get some sleep, dear. (sighs) I guess you're right. Good night. Oh, perfect. The walls at the patios were thin, and in the summer of 1964, neighbors heard him flush his toilet 20 to 30 times a night. I can see how that would drive you a little bit crazy. Yeah, especially since, apart from his odd nighttime behavior, Juan generally got along with his neighbors. Victoria Haas, Juan's direct neighbor, was apparently friendly enough with him that she often accepted packages for Valdez, usually rare orchids. But Juan did have other habits worth noting. For example, he often came over to Victoria and her husband Owen's apartment to use their phone for long-distance calls to Cuba and Miami. Well, which isn't so unusual, but remember, around this time, Cuba underwent a revolution that resulted in the country becoming a communist nation. Though Valdez was American, the anti-communist paranoia of the era meant that his Cuban ethnicity might not have been looked upon kindly. Mm. So it's hard to tell how much of Juan Valdez's behavior was actually suspicious, and how much of it only seemed that way after Mary's murder and the scramble for answers that followed. Juan Valdez, Alvin Alcorn, Elmer Peterson, and Victoria and Owen Hawes were the neighbors and domestic workers surrounding Mary Sherman on the night she died, each living out their lives, aware of each other, but not particularly close. Until the hours of July 21, 1964, when an apartment fire ignited a flurry of confusion, police misdirection, and scandalous rumors throughout the city and brought Mary's neighbors together in a ring of confusion and suspicion. The question that confounded both the medical and legal communities was, what exactly happened the night Mary Sherman was murdered? 
We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, let's continue our story. The afternoon of Monday, July 20th, seemed to be an ordinary one. Mary headed home early and arrived around 4 p.m. She likely drove her white 1960 Plymouth Valiant home and parked it at the patios, but this is only a likely scenario. Because the next day, that would not be where her car was found. But more on that in our next episode, when we dissect the aftermath. Before she died, maintenance man Alvin Alcorn saw Mary at 4 p.m. Elmer Peterson, Mary's housekeeper, last saw her around 4.30 p.m. Ms. Peterson, what can you tell me about Mary Sherman's actions the afternoon before her murder? Well, she got home around 4.30 in the afternoon, and she'd come home early to wash her hair. Was this a typical Monday tradition? I don't think so. The doctor was expecting visitors from out of town. She laid out a dress, the, um, the polka-dotted one. Can you tell me more about her visitors and when they were expected? Mm, I don't know anything more than that. I'm, I'm sorry, officer. This polka-dotted dress was later found on a chair near Mary's body, corroborating Elmener's story. This was the last known sighting of Mary Sherman on July 20th. It's possible she left the house later that night, but we don't know for sure. We do know that Mary usually locked her door and activated her alarm. And we also know that Mary didn't like being out alone at night, thanks to an interview with her former co-worker, Gordon McFarland. Mary did not like going out at night. When she was on call, about the only way you can get her to come in was if a bone was actually sticking through the skin of the patient. Hang on, though. If Mary was friends with a couple of colorful artists like Max White and Charles Blake, I find it hard to believe that she wouldn't have had a few late nights out on the town. True. But maybe Mary made an exception for her artist friends. Or maybe her former co-worker McFarland just didn't know about that side of her. Or maybe she just went to a lot of early evening happy hours and made it home before the dead of night. Also a possibility. Anyway, unless an emergency forced Mary to go back to work on the night of her murder, it's unlikely she left the apartment alone. And if she did, someone might have heard her. After all, the patio's thin walls alerted Owen and Victoria Haas to Juan Valdez's peculiar flushing habits. And Mary's downstairs neighbor, Mrs. Levy, alleged to a newspaper that though she had gone to bed early that Monday night, she might have heard if Mary had come home late or if there was a struggle in her apartment. If there'd been a loud commotion, I know I would have heard it. The doctor was quiet. But I always heard her come in and take off her shoes, then padding around in her slippers. Sometimes I remarked to my husband, Doc's home again. I believe that Mrs. Levy knew Mary's routines, but maybe expecting guests shifted Mary's routine somewhat? Hmm. Perhaps expecting guests, ones who might arrive late at night or early in the morning, would have meant Mary would have left her apartment unlocked or her alarm deactivated. Sure, but who were these guests? there's no record of any guests arriving, which is probably a good thing for them. Yeah, a murdered hostess isn't exactly the best New Orleans welcome. Presumably, anyone arriving would have stuck around and called the police if they'd found Mary murdered. Unless the guests killed her, which would go a long way towards explaining why there was no sign of forced entry in her apartment. Well, then again, because we know so little about these alleged guests, maybe we're wrong in thinking they were arriving to stay with Mary. 
After all, her apartment only had one bedroom and no guest room. Unless the visitor was only one person, and that person intended to share Mary's bed with her. So maybe this was a romantic encounter she was expecting. Mary did come home early to wash her hair and lay out a nice dress, which kind of sounds like date night preparation to me. Perhaps her vague assertion to her housekeeper, Elminer, that there were visitors coming from out of town was a white lie. So you're saying there were no visitors? No, just maybe that the visitor wasn't coming from out of town. Maybe it was a romantic visitor. A woman, perhaps? Ah, if the rumors about Mary's love life were true. At any rate, whoever allegedly visited Mary could have visited and left before the murder, could have been the killer, or could have never shown up at all. The trail on those supposed visitors goes cold here. Visitors or not, the terrible burden of letting the police know about the fire in Mary's apartment was left to her neighbor, Juan Valdez. New Orleans PD. Hello, my name is Juan Valdez. I live at the Patio's Apartments. Uh, in St. Charles? Yes. I don't quite know what's going on, but I smell smoke. Upon first glance, it's not surprising that Valdez would be the one to notice the fire. He was often noted to stay up late. Mysteriously flushing his toilet, for example. But the strange thing is, Juan Valdez didn't live next door to Mary. Right. They both lived on the second floor of the patios, but picture the building as horseshoe-shaped. Juan lived on one end of the horseshoe, closest to St. Charles Avenue, while Mary lived furthest away from St. Charles near the center of the horseshoe. So it's not likely that Juan would have smelled the fire first. Unless smoke traveled through the building's air ducts. But the patios didn't have a central air conditioning or heating system, according to an interview with Owen Hawes years later. So Juan would have had to be closer to Mary's apartment than his own apartment, perhaps taking one of his late-night strolls. Or he may have had his door open and the wind blew the smoke in the exact right direction. But remember, Mary's whole apartment wasn't on fire, just the mattress and her body. The police report indicates that there was actually minimal fire damage to the apartment, so it's not the same thing as a blazing fire that someone could smell or see from a great distance. That's true. And it brings us to another question. Who would you call if you smelled a fire? The fireman. Ah, but who did Juan Valdez call instead? The police. Ooh. It's possible that in the panic of fearing for his neighbor, he went straight to the police assuming they'd alert the firefighters too. But if I were Juan Valdez, a Cuban in communist-fearing 1950s America, I might not be so quick to throw myself into a police situation. So why call them? I don't know. But it resulted in Mary's body being found by the police as soon as possible. And what they found was horrific. Shortly after Juan Valdez's 4 a.m. call to the New Orleans police, Officers arrived to find a fire in apartment J, Mary Sherman's home. Firefighters were called in, and they eventually discovered a burning mattress on the ground covering Mary's body. Mary was lying face up on the floor, a pile of clothes oddly laid on her to cover her from hip to neck. The most horrific image was that of Mary's charred flesh. The fire had consumed the right side of her body. Her right arm and right torso were totally gone either burned away or removed prior to her being placed on the ground. Thanks to this injury, Mary's liver, intestines, and lungs were fully exposed to the unlucky onlookers. But while that alone could have killed her, there was more. She was stabbed several times in the abdomen and her left arm, 
possibly during an act of self-defense. There were lacerations across her genitals as well. And a stab wound straight through her heart, which some said was done with surgical precision. There was no sign of forced entry at the door. Her alarm was deactivated, and her wallet and jewelry box weren't taken, indicating that this likely wasn't a burglary. Instead, it's almost like her murder was a mashup of several different crimes, rape, murder, arson, dismemberment, and assault with a deadly weapon. The police's first task would be to figure out which act was committed first. Over the next few weeks, the police would begin an investigation that spiraled in and out of Mary's work, her French Quarter after-hours hangouts, and her relationship with her neighbors. We've established that Mary wasn't particularly close to the other residents at the patios, but it turns out that each of them had a few secrets and observations of their own that might be the key to solving this murder. Like Owen Hawes who saw New Orleans policemen entering and exiting Juan Valdez's apartment late at night in the months before Mary's murder. Like Juan Valdez, who allegedly reported a burglary at Mary's apartment in January of 1964, but upon discussing the matter with the police, told them his name was Owen Hawes. And like young mother Victoria Hawes, who saw a lot of things going on at the patios while she raised her two daughters. She saw people come and she saw people go. Occasionally, people got the apartment numbers wrong on their visits. And one day, Victoria Haas got a surprising accidental visitor. I'm looking for Juan Valdez. The man was looking for Juan Valdez, but Victoria recognized him from a decade beforehand from middle school. He was a quiet boy back then and an unassuming man now. But in only a few months' time, his name would be on every American's lips. Because Juan Valdez's friend, who Victoria met that day, was none other than Lee Harvey Oswald, the man who shot JFK. Next episode, we'll cover the aftermath of Mary's murder and the police investigation that seemed to raise more questions than answers perhaps intentionally. We'll profile likely suspects in Mary's deceptively complex life and investigate new players in her story, like Lee Harvey Oswald, the presidential assassin hanging out at her apartment complex. And through that lens, we'll explore a fascinating alternative view of Mary's time in New Orleans that contextualizes her murder in a web of wild conspiracy theories. Linking her to the weaponization of cancer as a biological weapon. A Latin American drug trafficking ring rumored to be happening right under her nose at the Oxner Clinic. Dangerous science experiments performed right in Mary's apartment. A particle accelerator accident in a secret laboratory that could be the true cause of her death. And the idea that Dr. Mary Mary Sherman's murder could be linked to the holy grail of conspiracy theories. The assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Tuesday, and next Tuesday we'll continue our investigation into the case of Mary Sherman. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. 
It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Carrie Murphy. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Amin Osman and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Mick Lambeth, Janice Liebhart, Sarah Miller-Cruz, Steve Pinto, and Daniel Velasquez. 